Okay. All right. <clears throat> Let me go ahead and pray for us. Father God, thank you so much for this time. Uh, we get to come before you, come before your word, and uh, be changed by it, be studied by it. Father, I pray we'd be humble. I know it's been a long week for many of us. It's a Friday night. Kind of tired. It'd be tough to keep our eyes open. But I pray that you would give us an extra measure of grace so that we'd be attentive. Uh, give us physical stamina, uh, but more importantly, Father, open our hearts and our ears and make us um, come to our knees before you to hear your voice and to be shaped by it uh, for your glory and our joy. We love you and praise you. Thank you. Christ in my prayer. Amen. All right. <clears throat> um, so back when I was in high school, uh, there was this, I was like a junior. So I was a junior in high school, and I remember overhearing this conversation one time at church uh, between these two guys. One of them was a buddy of mine. His name is Jeremy. Um, and he's a year older, so at the time he's a senior. And then there's this other guy who was like in his 20s or 30s or something. I forget who the other guy was. Um, have you ever noticed that like when you're younger, everybody who's older seems to be like the same age? You know, like when you're in kindergarten, everyone from like 20 to 60 is like the exact same, you know? And right now we can't tell the difference between like 40s and 50s year olds and then, like, I wonder if we'll get to a point where it's like, are they 85 and a half or 86? Yeah, I can't tell the difference, you know. Anyway, so I couldn't tell how this, I couldn't tell you how old this guy is. Um, but he's having a conversation with my buddy Jeremy. And it's like that time of year when, um, well, probably around now, actually, Jeremy's getting ready to go to college, right? I think he went to UCI. Um, and they're talking about how Jeremy feels about going to college, and the guy's like, how do you feel? Jeremy's like, I'm really excited, I'm kind of nervous, but I'm kind of excited, probably what you would have said as a senior. And the other guy says, and I'm never, I'm never going to forget this, he says, Jeremy, just enjoy it. It's the best four years of your life. It's the best four years of your life. And first of all, first of all, I feel like that's like discriminatory against people who take not four years, right? Like, what if this guy had a lot of APs, you know? Or what if he just wanted to take his time or he switched majors halfway through? But then also, like, if those are your best four years, right? Like, some of you in this room, right, are not having a great time in college. You're not having a lot of fun. So you're like, man, if this is the best four years of my life, like, forget it, you know? Like, I don't want to do the rest of it then. Um, and I'm like really shocked even now that someone at our church would say that to another guy and set him up like that. But I kind of get where he's coming from, right? Like you guys are in college, you can kind of think about what's nice about college, and it's like a lot. There's a lot of things about college that are pretty nice, right? Um, it's this confluence of like freedom that you've never had and independence that you've never had. Um, but you also have zero responsibilities, like literally nothing you have to do. Um, there's all these people there are all these ideas, there's all this, all this food, these new friends, these experiences that you can enjoy. You have this access that you've never had before, you know. You can do anything in college, and that's, like, really fun and special, and the people you're around with, uh, you're around are, are special. You're young, right, so you're probably, like, in your prime mentally and physically, um, hopefully. Uh, you're smart, right, you're learning a lot, you're studying, you're, you're getting all these new ideas pushed into your brain every day, um, there's a lot of stuff going for you in college, you know? So from a certain perspective, I kind of understand what this guy's trying to say. He's like, college is the peak, you know, of everything. Um, so I got a question for you. When do we peak? Like, if you were to, to pick a time of your life when it, like, gets to the very top, you know? It's all uphill, and then it's all downhill. What is that moment? If you were to imagine the, the perfect stage of your life, what do you imagine? Maybe you agree it's college, right? Some of you are having a blast. Maybe you think, like, nostalgic. You're nostalgic, right? So, so you think, like, now my childhood. Like, dude, fourth grade. Fourth grade was the best, you know? Or maybe you think you're just not there yet, right? You're just going to keep getting better. So, like, when you're at the top of your career, right? Or when you retire, you know? Like, I'm going to retire at the age of 45. I'm going to travel the world for, like, 40 years. I'm going to have this yacht. You know, like, that'll be the peak, right? I don't know. You, you've got your idea of, of your peak. And then I wonder about, like, what is it about us when we're at our peak that makes us feel like we're at the peak, you know? So maybe it's physical health. Um, so right now, you're, you're probably in the, the best years of your life, right? Um, and you know that's going to go downhill eventually. Like, I'm 26, and if I don't stretch in the mornings, like, my back hurts. And that's really scary. And that's like a few years for you guys. 
And then there's guys like Tom Brady, who's like 5,000 years old, you know, and he's still playing and winning Super Bowls. Um, or maybe it's intellectually, right? Because you know how your brain loses plasticity over time, right? Um, and like as a kid, it's really easier to learn languages, but then you can't later on. Uh, so maybe you peaked as a kid, I don't know. Um, or maybe you think it, the, it's the opposite, right? Like I'm going to get older, I'm going to get wiser, I'm going to have more experience, right? Gray hairs will be my crown, that kind of thing. Um, anyway, I think we've, got, we've all got this idea of a peak, right? When we peaked in our lives so far, um, what it looks like, what we look like. Well, perfection, peaking, coming to the pinnacle of our lives, that's something that Paul's going to talk about in our passage today. Um, and he deals with both of these types of questions, right? When do we peak and what does it look like for us? When do we peak and what does it look like? Spoiler alert, the answer is not college. Paul doesn't think that the four best years of our lives are in college, right? And he's actually, and you could probably guess this, going to say that the best years of our lives aren't even here on this earth, right? That we peak at the very end, at death, and then it's just the best years forever. So that's where we're going to arrive at. Okay. We're studying our, uh, right now in Beacon, we're studying the book of Philippians, and we're going to continue that. So if you haven't already, why don't you jump to tonight's passage. It's Philippians chapter 3, verses, 20, uh, sorry, verses 12 to 16. Philippians 3, 12 to 16. <clears throat> All right, everyone there? Okay, good. I'm going to start in verse 12 and go to verse 16. This is what Paul writes. Not that I've already attained this, or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus had made, has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of, of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Okay, so there's a lot going on in this passage, but I want to kind of give you a big structure before we dive in, okay? So if you're taking notes, you can, you can write about this. Verses 12 to 14, you can break up into two sentences, and they basically have the same structure. It's like two parallel sentences, okay? If you look at the first sentence in verse 12, right, you'll see that there's first a disclaimer, okay? Not that I've already obtained this, or I'm already perfect, right? That's a disclaimer. And then he makes a statement, and the, the central verb is, I press on, you see that? Okay. I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus had made, has made me his own. Right? So disclaimer and then I press on. And then if you look at verse 13, you have the same exact structure. First, disclaimer, I do not consider that I have made it my own. See that? Then, same statement, I press on as the central verb, right? Forgetting what lies ahead, straining forward to what lies, uh, for, sorry, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal. Okay, so that's our, that's our parallel structure. He's really saying like nearly identical things twice. Um, but I got a couple questions, right, when I read this. First of all, what is it that Paul hasn't gotten yet, right? What is he pressing on toward? What does he feel like he hasn't obtained yet? What is this thing? So that's going to be point number one. Okay, if you want to write the outline, this is point number one of three. It's what's at the end. What's at the end? Okay. And what exactly does it mean that he hasn't obtained it? Okay? So what does that mean for him now? Well, that's point number two. What we are now. What we are now. So point number one is what's at the end. Point number two is what we are now. And then he talks about this pressing on thing, right? That's the central verb in both, uh, in both sentences. So that's number three. What do we do from now till the end? Okay? So we're going to talk about the end. We're going to start at the end. Then we're going to talk about what we are now and then we're going to talk about what happens in between from now until the end. You guys got that? All right. So point number one, what's at the end? Look back at verse 12. Paul writes, not that I have already obtained this or I'm already perfect, and then parallel part in verse 13, I do not consider that I have made it my own. So we get this idea that Paul's talking about something that he's working toward, right? Something that makes him not perfect. But what exactly is it? Right? What has he not gotten? What has he not yet made his own? There's this missing antecedent, right? If you uh, know that word, it's, it's, it's something that he's 
referring to from earlier in the thought, but we don't know what it is. So we're going to have to back up, okay? Um, so let's back up to verse 8, all right, and get some context and try to figure out what this missing antecedent is. And it'll sound kind of familiar because Francis preached a couple weeks ago on verses 1 through 11, right? But let's start in verse 8. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Okay, so let's think about this missing antecedent, what could Paul be referring to from this earlier part of his letter that he now feels like he hasn't obtained yet, okay? So we got a a, a few options. First, maybe he's talking about being found in Christ, having a righteousness that comes through faith in Christ, right? That's verse nine, okay? Uh, And that's what Francis preached about, if you'll remember, if you think back to a couple weeks ago, there's this alien righteousness, right? This righteousness that Jesus has that's outside of us, that we need for our salvation. You guys remember that? Right, because we can't be good enough on our own. But if you remember that sermon, right, then this option doesn't look right at all. Because if Paul is talking about this thing that he's striving towards, right, that he's trying to get by working towards it, then that defeats the whole point, because the point is there's no righteousness that's good enough for you to get on your own, right? Um, Paul talks about how there are all these things that he did as a Pharisee, the model Jew, right, the blameless person, and it wasn't enough to make him right with God, so it can't be this option. Second option, look with me to verse 11, okay, that by any means possible I may attain a resurrection from the dead. So maybe Paul's talking about, like, being raised from the dead, right, that moment when he he dies and God brings him to life. And that's a little closer, but I don't think that's the full picture, right? It's a little strange to say that that's what he's striving towards. Like he wants to to strive towards that moment of death and going to heaven, right? So I think there's more to it than that. And I think the key is in looking at both verses 10 and 11. Okay, so pay attention here, guys. Verses 10 and 11. And let's read it again. Verse 10 goes like this. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. All right, so let's break that down really quickly. Look at that phrase, to know Jesus and the power of his resurrection. You see that? Now, Paul here is talking about experiencing a relationship with Jesus, to know him, right? But not just to know him, to know the power of his resurrection. So in the context of that relationship, Paul is living in Jesus' power, He's operating the rest of his life by Jesus' power, right? He's killing his sin by God's power. He's overcoming fear by God's power. He's trusting God's power. He's growing in holiness in God's power, carrying out his mission, sharing the gospel, advancing the kingdom by God's power, right? And then the resurrection from the dead is the culmination of all of that. Next phrase, to share Jesus' suffering and become like him in his death, okay? And we don't have too much time to go into this right now, but Paul is referring to something called our union with Christ. Maybe you've heard that phrase before. But basically the Bible teaches that we're united with Jesus in his death. Okay, In Romans 6.6, Paul writes this. Listen carefully, because this can get confusing. He writes, We know that our old self was crucified with him, Jesus, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Okay? What Paul's saying there in Romans 6, 6 is that in a real sense, Beacon, if you're a Christian, then when Jesus died on the cross, so did you. When Jesus died on the cross, so did you. And what that means is that the old self, right? because the Bible teaches us that we are all haters of God, ignorant, sin-enslaved, hell-bound, evil-doing people. Right? We're dead in our sin. That person dies on the cross with Christ. But it doesn't stop there, right? Romans 6, 5 says, For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Right? So Paul is saying if you're a Christian, then not only is the old you dead and gone, there's a new you. That when Jesus walked out of that grave, 
so did you. And you're a new creation. Okay? And the goal of your whole life is to become more and more like Jesus, the same Jesus you're united with. Okay, that's what we call sanctification, if you've heard that word before. Sanctification, this process of becoming more like Jesus. And so when we die, it's the culmination of this whole process. Okay? So guys, in verses, just to summarize for you, so you get the bottom line, in verses 10 and 11, here's what Paul's talking about. Paul is talking about this whole Christian experience of knowing Jesus more intimately, experiencing his power more with each day, suffering for him and becoming more like him, and then living out this new life that we've been given. And then one day when we die and go to heaven, it'll be the culmination of the whole process. We will know Jesus perfectly. We will experience his power perfectly. We'll be perfectly like him. Guys, that's the peak. That's the peak. When we die and we're perfected with Christ. So look back at verse 12. Paul says what? He says, not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect. What's the this? It's the peak. I haven't made it yet, is what he's saying. I haven't peaked yet. I'm not yet at the final state of knowing Jesus perfectly, experiencing his power perfectly, and being perfectly like him. And then look at verse 14. Just to add on to this, look at verse 14, guys, and read with me. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Okay? Let's talk about this upward call of Christ Jesus, what that means, right? This idea is a crazy idea, and I wish we could spend more time on this. Basically, what Paul is saying is that from the moment you're saved, there's this lifelong call that you hear from God. Okay? It's the call that saves you. It's the call that defines your life. And it's a call that brings you home. Now, so I was prepping this. There's this image that came to mind. You guys ever play outside as a kid? Right? Most of us probably, hopefully. Like in the street, in the backyard, whatever. Right? Okay. So, um, I want you to imagine yourself as a kid. All right? So, picture a kid playing outside. All right? It's getting around dinner time. Sun's going down. Um, in the distance from the house, you hear mom and dad. Their parents calling for the kid. Right? Calling your name. It's kind of faint, it's in the distance, but you hear it, you put away whatever you're doing, right? Put away your toys, put away the basketball, whatever, right? And you run towards the house, because you hear the voice, you hear the call. And as you get closer to the house, you, f- you smell this amazing smell, right? Imagine, not to torture you guys, but just a little bit, right? Imagine your favorite dish growing up, okay? Best home-cooked meal you've had, all right? Imagine that smell coming from the house. It's kind of faint, right? You're still outside, but then you open the door, and bam, you get hit with it. You smell, fill in the blank, whatever your favorite meal is, right? Dumplings for me, okay? So you know that your parents are cooking your favorite thing, okay? They're calling your name. You open the door, you burst in the house, they're still calling your name, right? You hear it louder, the smell's getting stronger, and you finally, you're running, right? You run to the kitchen, they're there, they're waiting, right? Table's set, dinner's ready, everything. Parents hug you, all right, your family's ready to eat. Um... I don't know if anyone's actually experienced that. That's not how my family did dinner, right? That's like a very, like, TV show, like, but just imagine, okay? It's this call from inside the house, right, from home, right? And as you get stronger and stronger, the smell, the smell, you can experience it more. The sound, sound, you can hear it more, right? They're calling to you. It calls you out from wherever you are, however far you are, and it continues to call you the whole way until it calls you all the way home. I think that's a little bit like what Paul's talking about. See, this is where we're going to end up. Verse 11, the resurrection from the dead, it carries a lot more than just like coming back to life. It means knowing Jesus perfectly. It means experiencing his power perfectly. It means being perfectly like him. It means having followed the call all the way home to our Father. So how does that change things for you? Right, I think at the very least, this should give us hope. This should give us hope. It means that for you, Christian, listen up, Christian, it means that the best is yet to come. No matter how good, no matter how bad things get in this life, the best is on the other side. 
It's not behind you, no matter how nostalgic you are. And it's not right where you are right now, no matter how much fun it is. It's not your career, or when you have a family, or the American dream, or retirement, or whatever you're hoping for, for tomorrow. Now, it's at the very end, beyond all that, and it's guaranteed, and it's forever. Can you live with hope because of that? Because you can hear the call, and you can smell the smell, and they're both getting stronger. So that's the end. Now, we've looked ahead to the end, and Paul says, but I haven't already obtained it, right? I'm not there yet. I do not consider that I have made it my own. So that's going to bring us to point number two, where we're at now. Point number two, what we are now, okay? And this part we're going to spend a lot of time on because, um, because I think it's important for us to really think about how this impacts our lives. So I hope you're still paying attention because the question is, guys, the question is, what is it going to mean to live like I'm not there yet? What is it going to mean to live like I'm not there yet? Where I should be, where I'm headed, where I want to be. Because I think, look, anybody, including non-Christians, you probably agree with this, right? We're going to admit that we're not perfect. Anybody would agree, right, that they're imperfect, that there's room to grow, that I have things to learn. But I think, guys, and be careful here, because I think if we're being honest with ourselves, like really honest with ourselves, there are actually a lot of times when we don't live like that's true. We don't live like we're imperfect. We live like we have arrived at the end. And especially in college, I feel like this is a danger because so many of you, and this is a beautiful thing to see, but so many of you are growing a lot, like in so many ways, right? Intellectually, spiritually, right? Horizontally, because it's the first time you've ever had like good dorm food that you don't have to wash the dishes and it's all you can eat, whatever. And there's this real temptation, you know, when that kind of thing is going on for us to think that we've arrived, And now some of you are thinking, no, 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 that's not my attitude, though. Like, I'm humble about it, right? I know that I'm not perfect. Do you get the irony? Like, that's exactly what I'm talking about, right? We think we've arrived. Um, I think, you know how our church is going through Good and Angry right now? Um, So in our small groups, this church, we're going through a book study of this book called Good and Angry. Um, and as I read through that book, I feel like half of the book is the author, David Pallison, just trying to convince us that now you do have an anger problem. And then like half of it's actually fixing it, but like you, you've got to spend a lot of pages on convincing people that they actually need to read the book that they're reading, you know? Um, because naturally, guys, naturally, we become so defensive and self-assured and prone to overestimate ourselves. You know, like we, we think we're good. We do. Um, And that's what makes this really scary, right? So let me just encourage you right now to come before God's word with humility. And as we examine our hearts, right, to to just be on our knees. Right now we're going to look at three areas of our lives where we can find evidence that actually, yes, sometimes we do act like we're perfect, like we've arrived, okay? And those three areas are going to be in relation to self, these are on your notes, in relation to God, and in relation to others. Self, God, others. First, self. In relation to self. Uh, You know those people who are so overconfident, like so cocky that you're just hoping, you're just hoping that they mess up, you know? There's just one basketball player in the NBA. Um, For those of you who watch basketball, you know him. His name is Nick Young, all right? (laughs) Used to be a Laker, which means I was automatically a fan of him, okay? Uh, By default. This guy, he went to USC, by the way, in case that matters to anybody, all right? Um... One play, some of you guys have seen it, right? Nick Young's famous for being a three-point shooter and a really cocky three-point shooter at that, right? So he's like right up at the top and he yanks this long three, okay? And he turns around before the, basket, before the basketball even goes in the net, right? He turns around, no joke, and he goes like this, okay? And there's this shot of Nick Young going like this, right, celebrating to the crowd, and the basketball's coming out of the basket. All right, so it doesn't go, it like hits the rim a little bit, bounces around, and then it comes right out. And it's like the funniest thing. Uh, he's on Shaq and a Fool, right? Uh, and, and everyone's making fun of him, right? Because if you're, if you're gonna be that cocky, 
then we're going to laugh at you when you're humiliated, right? So we like, we like it when people who are like really into themselves fall, you know? And, and we hate it when people around us are like that, right? When people are overconfident, you know, when they're uh, not self-aware, you know, when they think that they're really, really something that they're not. But Beacon, we got to look in a mirror because that's us. Let me just start with a few questions. Um, what does your relationship with your sin look like? And do you have a real brokenness over it? Like, when's the last time you can think of that you really confessed your sin before God? And I'm not just talking about, like, those big sin moments. You know what I'm talking about? Like, if you're dating, like, one of those moments of, like, sexual impurity, right, poor masturbation, something you really struggle with, and, and you fall, and, and you wake up, and there's that aftermath, right? That's not what I'm talking about. I mean, it's, it's that, but there's more than that, right? I'm talking about, like, a daily sensitivity to sin, that causes you to genuinely and like really confess and repent before God every single day, okay? Because if you don't feel brokenness, it might be that it's because you don't see your sin clearly. If you're not repenting daily, it might be because you don't think your sin affects you daily. That you can go entire days, entire weeks without sinning, right? If we're not repenting every day, then, then isn't that what we're saying? See, when the Bible talks about sin, guys, it often associates it with living in darkness or living blind. Let me show you that real quick in 2 Corinthians 4. So if you want to uh, keep a tab on Philippians 3, we're going to go to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Okay. And in 2 Corinthians 4, Verses 3 and 4, Paul talks about this exact idea. Sin as living in darkness or living blind. He writes this. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Beacon sin blinds. It just does. Not just for the non-Christian, even for the Christian, our remaining flesh, it blinds us. So let me ask you this. How would that change things in your life if you knew that sin was blinding? If you knew that you had blind spots, that we all do. If you really understood that even with the most genuine introspection, all the journaling, all the surveys you could take, you could not reach the depths of your own heart and understand it because it's deceitful like that, right? What would that change? Another side of the same coin, let me ask you this question. How many of you have been surprised by your sin before, right? Like what I mean by that is when you sin, do you ever wonder, man, how could I have done that, right? Or like, that wasn't me, or how could I have felt that way? How could I have said that? How could I have made that decision? Or maybe you even get really discouraged. Like, how could I have messed up again, I thought I was good. You know, I had this streak going. I was clean, I was sober, I was whatever for X amount of days, weeks, months. I thought I was over this sin thing. And then those good streaks, you keep them up, but when they end, you're surprised and you're even devastated by your sin. And I think we get surprised by our sin because we forget that it's there. Beacon, part of the problem is that we get really complacent Right? We start thinking that we've arrived, that we've obtained the end. And so we sin and we spiral out of control. Right? But Beacon, while sin itself should be shocking, it shouldn't shock us when we sin. While sin itself should be shocking, it should not shock us when we sin. We got to get this. Beacon, you will fail. Every single person in this room, you and I included, we will fail. We're going to mess up. We're going to turn against God. We're going to displease him at some point, tonight, tomorrow, next week, whatever. We are not what we need to be, Beacon, and we won't be until the end. And that's the whole point of the gospel. That's why we need grace, that's why God sends his son, Christ, at just the right moment to live the perfect life that you and I could never live 
but instead of going right back to heaven like he deserved, goes to a cross and is suffering the punishment that you and I deserve because we couldn't get out of this sin trap. Suffers the punishment that you and I deserve at the hands of his own father. Pays the penalty. And in exchange, there's a trade, right? In exchange, he offers to us his perfect righteousness, his perfect life, so that we can come before God and say, that's what I stand on because you've already paid it all. And then he comes out of the grave, right? We just talked about that in Romans 6. He comes out of the grave and he secures our union with him, our life in him, our justification in him. He secures it forever because he's victorious. Right, guys, that's, that's the whole point of the gospel. If you forget that you're a sinner, you forget the gospel. So, come clean. You're not better than you are. That's okay. Come to Christ. Come to his cross. He offers you forgiveness and grace, and his mercies are new every morning, and yes, you need them every morning. Let me talk about like one area where this comes out, I think, uh, with dating. And specifically with this idea of like, am I ready to date? Anybody heard that question before? Ask that question? Probably, right? And I think it's a helpful question to ask. Like, it's not wrong, right? Um, so don't feel bad if you've like asked that question or uh, been asked that question before and answered it. But sometimes I think we got to think about like, where does that question come from, right? Like if you're asking, am I content enough in my singleness, you know? Am I godly? Have I reached a certain threshold? Am I someone who loves God? When I hear those questions, it's like, well, yeah, probably you do, but also probably you don't, right? Like, if we're really saints and sinners, as the Bible describes us, then there's no, like, I'm fully content in my singleness. I'm fully godly. I'm fully ready. I fully love God with all my life, you know? Instead, there's, that's where I want to be, but I'm not there yet. And I'm working towards it every day. And that's the best I can do. You see the difference there? Right? Anyway, second area of our lives where we can find evidence that we think we're perfect in relation to God. So we just talked about in relation to self. Okay? Now we're going to talk about in relation to God. Jesus once said, and you probably have read him say this, that he came for the sick, not for the healthy. Right? That physicians treat the sick not the healthy. And his point obviously wasn't that there's anybody who's actually healthy without God. Okay? His point was that some people actually think they're healthy. right? And then some, on the other hand, recognize that they're sick. He's trying to make a distinction between how these two people see themselves. But I think it's a helpful analogy for all of us, for all of our lives. Um, I've told you guys this story before, right? Or not this story, but about how I've never been to the doctor. You know? Um, like the last time I'd been to the doctor was in high school. I was a senior, um, and it was to play sports, right? So it's like, you know how you have to get that physical to get cleared to play sports? That was the last time I'd been to the doctor, okay? So from 2000, I graduated in 2010, okay? 2010 onward, uh, never went to a doctor's office, unless it was like for work. Um, this changed this past weekend, actually, so update, I went to the doctor, yay. Um, but it's only because I had to. I'd been feeling pretty bad for a couple of weeks. I had, like, muscle aches, fatigue, um, yeah, like, bad headaches, that kind of thing. Uh, and it finally got so bad last Friday, actually, exactly a week ago, so that's why I wasn't here. Um, and it got, like, worse and worse over the weekend that finally on Sunday, my wife and I, Elena, were like, okay, I have, to, I have to go to urgent care. You know, I have to do something. So I go to urgent care. They take it, blah, blah, blah. Long story short, I'm, I'm here now. I finally went to the doctor for the first time in nine years, okay? Here's the point. I didn't go until I felt I needed to, right? I didn't go until I felt I needed to, unless I was like really sick. Beacon Jesus tells us that we're all sick. Whether you feel it or not, you're sick. Right now you're sick, right? And he's healed us in like an eternal way if you're a Christian by exchanging our life for his life at the cross. But even now, because of our sin, we're sick. Best Christians in this room, in this world, sick. All of us, sick. Until the day we arrive, until that very end, we attain the resurrection from the dead that we're just talking about, sick. And if you're sick, 
You go to the doctor. So let me ask you this. Is your relationship with God driven by the desperation that drives a sick person to urgent care? Do you read the Bible like you're sick? Like you need someone to diagnose your sin? Like you need someone to heal you and make you better? Do you? Do you obey him like you're sick? Do you take what he prescribes? Do you trust his recommendations, his commandments like you're sick? Like you know that he knows better than you do and he knows that he knows what you need and he knows he loves you and wants the best for you so that's why he's telling you to do what he's telling you to do. Do you treat him like that? How about this? Do you pray like you're sick? Do you pray with like a begging and a desperation and a rawness and a trust that this person you're talking to has all of the means to cure? Is your relationship with God like that? Or do you think you've arrived? Do you think you've spent enough time in church and ministry to know what's going on? Do you think you've read enough Bible to know what you need to know anyway? Do you think you're a good enough person, right, that you can kind of ride the wave of your morality? That maybe you don't really need a physician at all. And this isn't just to non-Christians. Christians can live like this too. Beacon, listen, you and I were sick. So go to a doctor. Finally, third area of our lives. Third area of our lives where we can find evidence that we think we're perfect, and it's gonna be in relation to others, right? So we talked about relation to self, relation to God, now in relation to others. So think about this. How often we compare ourselves to people around us and start feeling like we've got something they, they don't. We've got a maturity that they don't, a holiness that they don't, right? I mean, think about it. I'm, I'm sure that you can think of it like a specific person and a thought that you've thought about them. Like, man, how could they fill in the blank, okay? But you know what that's kind of like? That's kind of like, like if you're measuring your weight, right, and you step onto a broken scale, you know, and you have no idea if it's like how accurate it is or not at all, right? You wouldn't use a broken scale, right? You want a correct scale, Comparing others to us, that's like using a broken scale. And in this case, the only thing that has any ability to tell you really what's going on is the word of God, God's perfect standard. Because as far as we're concerned, none of us have arrived. We're all broken scales. We're all in the same boat. So comparing our neighbors to ourselves is like trying to step on a broken scale and figure out what your weight is. And yet we compare. Yet we compare. Um, an example, a lot of you guys are on ACF, right? Or other Christian fellowships, I think, do this. There's this process called affirmation, right? For a core that's like leadership, student leadership, right? And I think a lot of you guys are going through it right now, if I'm not mistaken, right? Core leadership. Affirmation is a tricky thing, man. Like, um, I know because I've been there, right, in ACF, And I think it's easy, just put yourself in these shoes right now. I think it's easy to, to, to be like, man, I hope people can recognize me, you know? I hope people see how much I've grown, how much I'm worth, what I can bring to the table. At the very least, I hope they see that I'm better than this guy or this person or this girl, right? But let me ask you, Beacon, what if you really believed that you haven't arrived? What if you really believed that? What if you had a really, like a really deep-rooted humility about it? What if you recognized that you are far from what you should be I wonder if we would demand respect so much, you know? Like, if we'd be as pissed off as when people don't recognize us for what we think we have to offer. I, I, I don't know if we would demand people's recognition as much, their acknowledgement of the good things that we've done. I don't know that we would be as offended if someone didn't see all the goodness in us, you know? See, when we start thinking we've arrived, then we put ourselves above others and we put ourselves above where we need to be. One more thing that it does to our relationships with other people, um, we start getting really impatient with them, right? Think about a friend who's been frustrating lately or did something that was really frustrating to you, okay? I'm sure we can think of something, all right? When your friends sin, your peers make unwise choices, let me ask you, how do you respond? Would you say that gentleness and kindness and sympathy, and patience, do those characterize how you respond when your friend sins? 
Are you able to love them regardless? Play the long game with them? Just walk with them for however long it takes? If it's not, maybe one of the reasons is that we've started to think that we've like arrived at a certain threshold at least where they need to catch up, you know? Like they're way behind us and we look at them and we're like, you're doing blank, I would never respond that way. But Beacon, none of us have arrived and we gotta believe that. And it's gotta show up in gentle, patient and understanding treatment of each other even when the other person sins. Uh, go back to that blindness, blindness thing. Remember when we talked about that in 2 Corinthians, right? So we've all got these blind spots, right? Um, one of the nice things about being married is that, uh, oh yeah, I got married a few weeks ago. One of the nice things about being married uh, is that Elaine and I can like drive everywhere together, right? We can carpool, so you, know, you have the carpool lane, you have someone to talk to, that kind of thing. So think about driving for a moment, right? When I'm driving Elaine and she's in the passenger seat, let's say we're on the freeway, right? When I need to merge, if she weren't there, then I have to do like this thing, right? And then like, I'm gonna, there's like a split second when nobody's looking forward, you know what I'm talking about? Because I gotta look out of, uh, out of my right uh, window. But if, jeez. Oh, I'm getting too into this illustration. If Elaine is there, right, and she's in the passenger seat, then what can I do? I can just be like, hey, Elena, can you check my right? Right? So that's a pretty common question you hear in our car. Check my right. Um, or command. Uh, if, I'm, if I'm like making a left turn right onto a busy street, same thing. I'm looking this way. I'm like, Elena, can you check my right? And she'll be like, clear, 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 not clear, clear. Um, it helps a ton when you have someone in your passenger seat because the driver of any car can't see everything. Right? They got blind spots. Beacon, that's our lives. You got blind spots, and you need someone to check your right. You need someone to check your right. The last encouragement that I would give you in this section is, is to just let your brothers and sisters in to check you. So let me ask you, are you good at taking correction? You know, when someone calls you out for something, how do you take it? Do you start saying, no, but what about you? Or how could you say that? Or look, this is what I'm going through. Or like, you need to be more blank when you comfort me or when you confront me. Um, yeah, how do, you, how do you respond? Or are you thankful that you are an imperfect person and that God has given you these imperfect people to help you and for you to help them? How about your advice? Do you ask for advice? Right? When you ask for advice, are you really willing to say, hey, these people see something in my life that I don't, so even if they recommend something that I feel like isn't quite right, that's not what I want, that's not what I feel, I'm gonna follow their advice. Are you really willing to say that? Or do you ask for advice, and you know that if this is you, do you ask for advice in a way that's really more like people, like you're trying to get people to say yes to what you've already kind of already decided? You know? Beacon, can you imagine how beautiful it would be if we were humble? Humbly aware of our sin. Humbly aware that we're not even aware of all of our sin. Humbly dependent before God. Humbly dependent on each other in this family that God has given to us. That would be a beautiful thing. Look back at our passage, verse 15. Verse 15. Philippians three fifteen. Paul writes this. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Okay, so we could dive into a lot, but let me just point out something. In what seems to be a really ironic twist, the word that Paul's using here for mature, you guys see that word in verse 15? Mature is actually the same word in the Greek that he used for perfect in verse 12. It's the same word. So he's saying in verse 12, none of us are perfect, I'm not perfect. And then verse 16, let those of us who are perfect think this way. So in this like ironic twist, he's pointing this out. The mark of a mature Christian is precisely that they do not think of themselves as mature. It is precisely that they genuinely acknowledge their immaturity. The mature Christian sees his or her sin, blindness, and shortcomings and will follow God's way on dealing with them.
A mature Christian is not content with where he or she is. A a mature Christian knows that he or she has not arrived. A mature Christian has a holy discontentment and lives in the constant reality that we have not yet arrived but wants to press on. So that's what's going to bring us home to our third and final point. Number three, what we do from now till the end. What we do from now till the end. We've talked about the end, talked about where we are now, and we're going to talk about what happens in between. Remember that parallel structure in verses 12 through 14? Right? Disclaimer, haven't gotten there yet, but I press on. Disclaimer, haven't gotten there yet, but I press on. Okay. So I want you to focus on that phrase, I press on. If you look up the Greek word for press on, in verses 12 and 14. It's this word, dioko, okay? Uh, And it's this word that's used in the context of racing or hunting or even fighting, like in battle, all right? Um, I wish I had more expertise with hunting, but I don't. I don't have a lot of experience with hunting. I don't know if you guys do. You guys know a guy named Alvin Park? He comes to this church, okay? There's this guy named Alvin, a really good guy. I encourage you to meet him and then tell him I told you the story. Uh, We're at men's retreat earlier this year, um, it's at the Oaks. And you guys been to the Oaks? I think a lot of you have been to the Oaks, right? So the Oaks, if you can think of it, there's this prayer chapel, and that's where at Men's Retreat we had all our gatherings. And that's like at the bottom of the hill, and then you got to go all the way up this big hill for the dining commons, and that's where the meals were served, right? So at the Oaks, uh, we're at this prayer chapel, and then it's lunchtime one day, right? So uh, Alvin and I and a bunch of other guys were walking up this big hill, and it's like a big hill, right? So we're like huffing and puffing, and all we want is lunch, and Alvin pipes up and he goes, go, he goes, guys, this is the closest I'm ever going to come to hunting for my own food. <laughs> um, what I think that story shows is that I don't know what to tell you about hunting. I don't have any background in it. Or Alvin. Alvin doesn't either. But that's what dioko means, right? To pursue as in a hunt, right? In a race, even in a war. Uh, look at something with me real quick. This is interesting. If you look at Philippians 3, 6, so in our passage, but then just back up a little bit to verse 6. Paul is giving this description of his former life, right? Remember, Francis preached about that a couple weeks ago. And he says in verse 6, as to zeal, he was a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. That term persecutor, guess what it is? Dioko. He hunted Christians down. He pursued them. He marked them, tracked them, found them, attacked them, tried to get them killed. Right? Same word. And then upon his conversion, this energy that he had directed at persecuting the church, it has a new direction. Where is it headed? Knowing Jesus perfectly, experiencing his power perfectly, being perfectly like him, and following his call all the way home. Look at verse 13. Paul says, Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. One thing I do. It's a singular focus. It's a race, it's a hunt, it's a pursuit with the same energy he'd used to fight his enemies and he does it now with a singular focus to be like Christ. So let me ask you, Beacon, Is that you? Is that how you treat your goal of Christ-likeness? As a goal to be pursued, raced after, hunted down at all costs with a singular focus. At the beginning of this message, I asked you, remember, what's your ideal self? When do you peak? We thought about things like being physically fit, right? Intellectually sharp, skilled, well-practiced at the top of our game. Think about what you need to do to get to the top of your game. Right? Take physical fitness, for instance. If you want to be physically fit, like if you're really committed to it, it changes everything, right? If you're really serious about it, it changes how you sleep, what you drink, right? what you eat throughout the day, how much you eat, right? how happy you are throughout the day because you're not eating. You're in the gym all the time. You're sore all the time. It's what you talk about. It's what you research. You're on these plans. It's what you think about. Right? You're recording calories. You're recording weight. It really changes everything. Beacon, the aim of everything the one thing we must do is to press on to Dioko for Christ-likeness. And that aim should change everything. What we do throughout the day, what we research, what we read, what we put into our minds, 
right? What we eat and drink, so to speak. What we talk about with our friends, what we think about when we're alone, what we do, what we keep track of, what we journal about. It should change everything. So let me close with this. Beacon, the end is a beautiful place. It's a perfect place. And we'll be perfect people, but we are not there yet. So let's not act like we are. And let's run until we get there. Uh, You know I love ending sermons this way. I'm going to end it this way again. Let's turn to one more passage, Revelation 21. And we're going to look at a picture of the end. John's prophecy in verses 1 through 4 about the end in Revelation 21, 1 through 4. And we'll just read it. John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Let's pray. Father, we look at the end, and it is a beautiful, beautiful place. Help us to put our hope in that, in that end, and not in this world where we are now. We're just passing through. And God, help us to never think that we are where we need to be. Help us to be humble, humble with ourselves, humble before you, humble before others. God, change Beacon, change us right now from the inside out to live with humility, to know that we have blind spots, to ask for help, to be be dependent on your grace. God, to not not live like we've arrived. And Father, help us to run hard, to pursue, to hunt, to race until the day you call us home forever. For your glory and our joy. Pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, you guys.